Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Gayomago land by me, Liam Miller, he, him, his, a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. Uh, Love, Rinse, Repeat is part of the Uniting Mission and Education family, and uh, we're excited to be supporting their work in uh, vital leadership and uh, promoting down, look below in the show notes, their upcoming Preach Fest festival, which is looking very exciting. My guest today is Melissa Flora Bixler, who joins us for, I think, the third time on the podcast. Melissa, welcome along. Thanks. It's so good to be with you again, Liam. Thanks for um, having me back again. Oh, always a pleasure. Uh, and so I'm glad to be talking. We're talking today about your new book, How to Have an Enemy. Uh, folks might also know uh, Melissa as the author of Fire by Night uh, and just from her wonderful um, online presence. Uh, so, you know, you might have come across her work before, but um, How to Have an Enemy is uh uh, you can all pre-order now is what I was trying to say. Um, so as you listen to this, I'm sure you'll be excited to open up another tab and do that if you haven't already. Uh, so Liz, we're going to talk about the book and I guess, you know, we probably start at the, the crux of the matter. You write at one point, no good comes from the denial of enmity. Uh, so this is a book about how to have an enemy, which I guess assumes a few things and perhaps, you know, most notably, that uh, that we should have enemies, uh, I guess, is one of the assumptions. Sure. You write here that yeah. um, Jesus does not call us to claim we no longer have enemies. Instead, he shows us how to have the correct enemies and how to have them well. Without enemies, there can be no call to love them. Now, I think in some ways this, this necessity of an enemy might come as a shock to some, or at least the... Um, the idea that there are specific enemies and not just kind of this broad concept that could be out there potentially. So let's just start with really the basic thing of, you know, why is it important for the Christian to have enemies and have them well? Yeah, I you know, I one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book was uh, because I come from a tradition, Mennonite Church USA, where... In, we think of, we have a hard time articulating this sort of question. This, how do how do how do you love your enemies? Mm. And then it's sort of there. There's a whole list of steps or things that you're supposed to do. And I don't want to diminish those. I think they're really beautiful and helpful. But I, but the question before how do you love your enemies is who are your enemies? Mm. Um, and so if you try to answer that question in a vacuum, you actually can't love people in the way that they. Are meant to be loved. In some ways, it's um, it's both an assumption that there's a category out there of people that we don't really that either we disagree with, we don't get along with, that there's something amiss here. We don't really want to name that relationship um, because it, there's something that feels reiterative, maybe about that, and um, just further ensconces us in enmity. So we jump to these sort of next steps for what we do. Um, and so I really wanted to ask the question that was before, how do I love my enemy? Um, and I think it's all over the Bible, right? I think like the Bible <laughs> is very clear that there are enemies. Yes. <laughs> and so the discomfort that we have inherited from um, is coming from somewhere else um, in, that, in ways that I think are actually uh not always bad. Like I think that the the anxiety about enmities actually makes sense in our world today. Um, but that's not enough of a reason to say, oh, we're just not going to talk about this. <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. So the book goes and you know is addressing a few different things with the way I guess enmity is obscured or or that 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 shirking of that we should be able to name our enemies, and we'll, and we'll come to a bit of that. As we go on, but I'm interested in the place that you start, which is the the infamous, um, notorious, uh, oft lauded Christmas Day truce of of World War One. So most people should know this. If you've seen Joy Noel, you've, you've you've seen this story. I think it's fairly widely known about this Christmas Day, both sides laying down their weapons and coming together uh, to celebrate, and and then the story goes from there. So talk about like starting there and I guess the way you see this as the Christmas Day truth as a myth uh, aimed at kind of perpetuating a certain understanding of uh, enmity as, as I guess overcome through interpersonal connection, which is a very common claim. 
Sure. Yeah. So, so something I learned about that story, uh, reading more about it, because it, it, like you said, it is ubiquitous. Um, I've preached on that story before. Mm. Who among us has not? Right? <laughs> it's, it's just a beautiful story about yes. reconciliation and what's possible when people, when enemies cross, are willing to cross the line. And, and I think there, you know, there is, I think what we like about that story is that um, it makes it seem really easy, right? Like, oh, if we only could see, if there was only a truce in the world, we could we could find our way to one another and things would change. And so it was really, it was um, it kind of shocking to me to find out that the next day, they went back to enemy lines or they went back to their own camps and started shooting at each other again. <laughs> like this was not a, um, you know, there, there were, this was certainly an important moment in the lives of these soldiers, but nobody was punished for this. It wasn't like there was a, a you know, we're, we're leaving our arms behind and we're going to, you know, we're going to try something new. Um, and in some ways it's interesting because it, this story has been told well, as I was doing this research, discovering all these other stories about World War I, where socialists and communists and other um, radical groups, even groups of soldiers, were really doing this daily intensive work to end the war. We're mm -hmm. absolutely critical of the imperialist, um, the imperialism behind the war. There were actually soldiers who at one point refused to fire on an enemy ship out of conviction, mm. right? It wasn't, it wasn't because they met someone and it, it, it changed their mind. There were all these political movements that happened. And so the question for me is, continue to be, why is that story so significant for us, but we don't tell the stories of, of, of the socialist movements yeah. against imperialism, right? Mm -hmm. um, because there's something political about that, because it has to do with systems, mm -hmm. because it's long and messy and complicated. Um, and it's saying that friendship isn't enough to, to dismantle um, enmity. You actually have to pay attention to the, to the entire way that um, enmity is built into, the, into this um, program of war. And until you do that, um, all, the rest of these things are just gonna be sort of um, uh, a nod to, to sort of the way that we wish things could be. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, definitely. And so you kind of take that like idea of that you know, that interpersonal connection, that outreach kind of thing um, from that kind of Christmas Day truce into uh, kind of contemporary US context of, of police holding um, kind of community get to know you things where they'll, you know, be at McDonald's and give out vouchers to the youths. And the idea is that I guess having met one another, um, that will mean the next time there's a fraught situation that, you know, th this pre-existing relationship or pre-existing um, you know, goodwill or trust that is believed to have been engendered will will mean that that is sees a different outcome. And again, you point out that this again is completely aligned in the fact that there was a, of a huge power differential of a structure and a system which essentially um, sets the result, um, right. regardless of the interpersonal stuff. So, I guess, yeah, I'm just curious there about the you're kind of talking about how often that that a lot of that empathetic focus on community building or reconciliation just completely ignores power differentials and, and the very um, structures that, that hold those powers. So talk to us a little bit about that move and, and I guess, yeah, yeah that real important um, attention to, to power differential when we're trying to, if we're gonna to try to talk about enmity. Yeah, you know, it's, and I, yeah, I think um, the, the way that we think about empathy is, is at, at the heart of a lot of these sort of, um, um, attempts to overcome conflict or to do reconciliation if we were involved in each other's lives. You know, this is the, mm. this is very much the narrative that comes out in um, in the in the in the language of of reconciliation it begins with personal relationships, um, and that's just actually really complicated. Surely that is true some of the time, right? Mm. But as we see in this example that I talk about that you just um, shared again, um, in these, you know the cops doing the funny dance outside of, you know, the school, um, or an example that we just had in the U S of police showing up to a small town 
at Black Lives Matter and this really beautiful moment of the town and the Black Lives Matter approach, you know, uh, and the cops all coming together and marching together. And six weeks later, that one of these police officers shows up at the January 6th Capitol riot, right? Like, so, so empathy is, is a tool. It is useful. It is, it is psychologically real and it's useful. Um, and, and the police utilize empathy to create um, goodwill. They know how to, they know how to utilize empathy. I know how to utilize empathy. I want people to understand that people in prison um, are not the worst thing that they have ever done. Mm. I utilize empathy all the time. And it is a complicated and fraught way to establish a political identity. It can be useful. Um, and it's also very, and it's also just very complicated. Mm. Um, but so we, but we continue to live in a world. And I think especially in a church where empathy is seen as a natural good um, instead of that there's actually a politics to empathy. Like empathy can actually be, mm-hmm. you'd, it's not neutral. It can be utilized in both directions. Um, and and it, and it qu- isn't quite the, um, uh, what's the, I'm, I'm trying to come up with like a sports metaphor and I'm not like great at sports, but like, um, like, like the, what, like the hitting the home run. Yeah. That's what I'm uh, and um, it, it doesn't quite do that mm. in, the, in, in the way, um, because if it did, if that's all it took, mm. we would not live in the world that we live in now. Yeah, like, yeah, it's just yeah. like If someone had already figured out that if we just got people in the room and understood each other's stories, like we just wouldn't be in the position we are in now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just I want us to make space for actually thinking about the politics of power among mm. us rather than making these, um, jumping to the as- assumptions that I actually think can be um, incredibly damaging to mm. people who are not at the center of that power. Mm. That's really helpful. And so I think like, that might be a nice way to kind of dovetail into the way the church kind of often um, operates in this way, um, in, in, in particularly how it thinks about, again, that kind of thing of, well, isn't it a great thing if we can have people from, the right and the left or the center or the whatever, um, whatever words we're going to use in that situation often, and and they can be together and they can be unified and they can see each other and they can connect over, um, whether it's over small talk or whether it's over the um, proclamation of Jesus is Lord, um, but, but by that we have connected and that's this kind of lauded, um, a lauded community, a lauded value that we have. Um, as a side note, I thought it's always like the, the commendable is that you kind of somehow have just, you know, a bit of right of center to basically a bit of left of center or to center. It's never yeah. like, hey, my church manages to hold together Marxist, Leninist, and anarchists. And like, and we, and we hold, it's like, and from my days of student politics, that is the harder, yes, um, <laughs> right? you know, space yeah. to hold. Um, <laughs> but still, this idea that that's what we should be, you know, celebrating and, and connecting and patting ourselves on the back. But again, you kind of, one of the things you point out is often those groups that we have unified, you know, even if there is a bit of a political divide, usually share power, the same amount of power in their society or their community or neighbourhood. And so thus it is very easy to kind of have this unity. Um, And if anything, as you say, it actually then becomes this kind of dangerous thing in that it's really, you know, it's creating and it's, it's, it's ignoring where the actual power matters, right. where, where, why the divisions um, in, in politics um, matter, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah, do you want to just talk a little about, you know, kind of breaking down that kind of belief that the, the, the best church is one that can somehow exist across the party lines, as it were? Yeah, it's just such an interesting fiction to me. Um, I, I want to know, like, who came up with that? Like, mm. I like what's the you know? I'm always interested in just like the like the the genealogy of these things um, because they're so like you said. I mean, you sort of say this um, jokingly, but but this is this is true for my congregation. I've mm. got like Occupy Wall Street people and Marxist people and Antifa people, and then like a very big Joe Biden supporter. And right. I'm like, good for me. For <laughs> together, quite yeah. honestly. Mm. Um, and then like Mennonites who are like kind of apolitical, like who decided like that the, that the range of um, 
of difference that matters is an import of um, the party systems from 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 our political world. Like it just, mm. um, yeah, it's it, the only guess that I have about why we are so invested in that is because a model of polarization that presents two equal, um, equidistant from center sides mm. um, who have extremes, right? We have the far left and the far right in, in, in the U.S. Um, and the people who really benefit from breaking up the world that way are the people are centrists, mm. Right. Um, the people who benefit from because they end up getting to say, oh, we're the only grown up in the room. <laughs> right. Like we are the only ones who, who can think rationally and are accepting. And what I don't think people realize is that is a politic like that is actually that is a political decision that you make um, to to be to moderate two views when one may be good and one may be bad on different things. So for instance, um, you know, I was working on this um, lecture that I'm giving on polarization. And one of the, um, one of the exercise we're doing is for people to identify where on the, on the political spectrum um, in the US, you would put a few statements. Mm. And one of those statements is racism is real and affects uh, people's everyday life. And I'm guessing that a lot of people are going to say that's a left to pretty far left position. It is just true. <laughs> it is just true. There's no far right. Like if you say racism does not affect people's everyday life, mm. you're just bringing in something that's not true. And so you're asking people <laughs> to moderate the centrist between something that's not true and mm. something that's true, um, which does not make any sense for us. Um, that that is not the kind of life that we are trying to live. Um, and so, so this is, you know, where um, we get into the church and when we start to try to moderate these positions or when the church thinks that it's the only grown up in the room, the only person who really like is dispassionate enough to be able to sort of bring everybody together. Um, not everybody bears that weight in the same way. It is people who have little control over their lives, who have been subjected to racist and homophobic and um, classist um, socioeconomics. Those are the people who actually have to bear the burden of unity. If you're the person who already gets to decide things, then all you're doing is making some sort of conceptual space for other people to come along. Um, but if you still control how everything happens, what what are you actually being asked to give up in the midst of that? Mm. Um, and so whenever people, the, the question I always want to ask is, um, who is asking for unity? Mm. That's who I, that's, that's, I want to know who that person is and what it is that is behind, like, what do they really want? Um, mm. And until I can get that question answered, I feel a little skeptical. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. And so one of the things you talk about with unity then is that the movement of Jesus Christ is not seeking a unity across, you know, right and left, but those who are, you know, have been called out of the old principalities and powers and are participating in their destruction and the and and the seeking of a, you know, abundant life for, for all. Like that is what it should be grounded on. So it's 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 okay to say certain this church does not stand for certain positions, but, you know, denials, et cetera. We are out and out about this. And, you know, you can have a range of views on X, Y, and Z, but this is what we're about. Uh, yeah. and, and that's okay. So, yeah, I guess, um, yeah, I'm curious about that and, and trying to think about how that looks and how you kind of have seen that working in your own ministry and things like that, of that going like this is, you know, yeah, th this is the unity kind of that we should be appealing to, not one that makes us look would look nice on whatever meet the press, um, but 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 is about actually. Well, I guess it's we're saying it's about something. It's it's a unity for a purpose that is that goes beyond um, comfort. Um, yeah. So yeah, 
Yeah. And this is where I, you know, I really, I, I love that, um, the image that Paul uses, and I think I talk about this in the book, um, mm -hmm. that the, the image for the, for the church is not, um, is not a static object. Mm -hmm. It isn't a, a house. It isn't a tree. Um, you know, there, it is a body, mm -hmm. like, like, mm -hmm. like a body, um, moves and acts in the world. Like if you had a, a body that didn't like, like love and enjoy and act and have friendships, mm. we would consider that, um, an impoverished life, one that we would want, we want people to have those things. Right. So, so this idea that there's per that we do things, um, <laughs> Uh, that feels really significant to me that, that mm. Paul intentionally chose that metaphor. Um, um, we are, are trying to do something here, <laughs> like, and that thing is to, um, to participate in the uh, endless reign of God that begins in this life and extends forever, um, mm. to graciously step in to this, uh, world that has been freed from the, um, socioeconomic, um, heteronormative, racist forms of um, violence and destruction that um, bind this world. And somehow through, um, through the great joy of participating in God's work among Israel, Gentiles like me get to be a part of that. Um, mm -hmm. And that is to, that, um, and so to reduce that to, well, we're, you know, we're going to, just listen to all the opinions in the room, or we're just not going to talk about politics. Um, I just, it just feels like such a, um, a sad and unfortunate way to live when, when this real gift of, of living a redeemed life together has been offered to us. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for that. So that, that, I was thinking about like, and this might be a very mainline thing, but when I was like being trained in to be a minister, like a lot of what you're like, you know, asked to do, like, you know, are you going to be able to minister to people who, who don't believe the same as you, right? Like in terms of political things or theological things. Um, and it's interesting, like I, I, I often thought about what is um, like minister to doing in that context, right? Like, because yeah, yeah. I think in a lot of times it's about the, are you able to do... Um, <laughs> be present to people and cater to people in such a way they feel they can stay um, regardless if they believe something else. Whereas, you know, I think to minister, you could answer that like, yeah, absolutely. I'm ready to minister to those people by calling them out of the death cults in which they are participating, you know, like there's, um, you know, and I, know, I definitely know of like, you know, you know, in that in, in my formation of, of ministers in our church saying like, you know, like, yeah, my, my congregation don't know what I think about important topic X. Cause I, you know, if they did, then they'd know I wasn't, kind of, I, you know, I, it would be harder for some to know that I was their minister, you know, those kind of things. Sure. And so that was in my head when I read these two quotes um, from your book, which is, uh, my work in the church is not to soften strong beliefs or shelter oppressive ideology under the guise of our oneness in Christ. Instead, we carve out a common life within the good news of Jesus' redemption. And uh, as a pastor, I don't see it as my role to create politically diverse church where people share their ideas dispassionately in an attempt toward middle ground or mutual transformation. So I guess thinking about, you know, the role not only of the church but as those called to lead within the church, whether ordained or lay um, or, or what have you, um, that, you know, there's this that pastoral care or that the care of the souls and bodies of those within our midst doesn't necessarily mean that we um, try to make everyone be able to stay, right, or, or, or make accommodations for all or, or, or that kind of thing. But, you know, it's about this, you know, pulling people out of something and into something, which necessarily means some people won't want to stay um, and, and, and that being fine. <clears throat> so, yeah, I was just, and, and I guess almost in a way being able to name the way that people within our communities are complicit in in <clears throat> in enmity, in our complicit in violence towards others in our congregation or in our neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, so I'm just thinking a bit about that, about again the church, about your role within the church as, as a leader. Um, and yeah, and, and how that looks, you know, that pastoral care can can be um tinged with <laughs> discomfort. Yeah. I I think that's true. I think there um 
there are, are certainly, um, yeah. And I, I use a lot of eye language because I know everybody's in a, you know, in a unique position. Um, and so, um, you know, I hope this book offers it's for all these books are the starting point for conversations that we're having in our own context. Right. Um, and so for me, um, in my context, it's, it's really important to be, um, to create a safe space for LGBTQ people. Um, and to be really clear about that, um, that if people who are the bearers of heteronormative power want to come in and bully or harm people in my church, we just don't have space for that. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. um, you don't have to believe everything that we believe, um, but we are, but we do want to create a space, a space that um, is nourishing and nurturing for people who have been harmed, um, which which feels really significant um, for us. Um, and there, you know, and I think that we also, um, you know, that I, I hear pretty often um, pastors who tell me, oh, my church could never have done that event, or um, we could never have um, raised bail to get someone out of ICE detention. And I just think like, yeah, maybe you're on this longer journey. Um, and that's okay. Like be on that journey. Like, you know, maybe you got appointed to go somewhere. You don't need, this is like, this is, you know, we're all working with what we've got. Um, but that is a very different thing from saying sort of what we were talking about before that, um, that the goal of our church is to really find ourselves, um, in a place where, we we can we can leave all the stuff behind that not everybody agrees on because at the end of the day that's often what happens um you know we we can't really be a sanctuary church for because we actually half our church thinks that um if you, if you got into this country as a child um without papers that you should be deported in your 40s like that that's a really that's not a good place to be as a mm. congregation. Um, mm. And if you aren't if you can't say that about at least within yourself, um, then that feels like it's going to also be really hard for pastors, right? Because I also hear this all the time um, that I don't think that bishops and other people who um, called ministers to these churches recognize of like actually the kind of harm to the self that occurs Mm. from constantly having to feel like you're skirting the important work of the gospel because you know that you can't, you've put in a, been in a position to fail in some ways or, and, and I, that breaks my heart Mm. for clergy who find themselves put in that position. Um, oftentimes with no support, um, oftentimes underpaid, this is your job. You've got kids. Like you don't have a chance. You can't quit or move on to something else. Um, so this isn't just about like suck it up and like get in there and do your thing, right? We also need to have like the the support systems and to actually have people in leadership of our churches say, hmm, what's it like to be a woman at this church where half the people don't think women should be pastors? Mm-hmm. Happens to Methodists all the time. I'm just like, how how could you live a healthy, full life if you're in that role? Mm. Um, yeah. So again, there's all these systems around this, um, and we have to stop lifting this up as again as like a natural assumed good for our mm. churches. Mm. Thank you. Um, so I was thinking about how like people often kind of talk about. I was in a conversation with someone the other day. We were both in a kind of ministry context where. There's large numbers of um, poor or, or people in temporary home, housing or, 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 or um, yeah, a lot, lot, a lot of poverty. Then there's kind of maybe a new influx of the area becoming gentrified. And then there's kind of a mix of a third group often who are kind of have been there a long time, aren't quite as poor, but aren't quite as rich, somewhere in the mid, you know. And yeah, um, yeah. we are kind of talking about how, like, you know, how do you be a, you know, you know, when you said to be a church like that, it's very difficult to think about a way that you would be church that that um, mm. appeals aesthetically or um, you know programmably to all those groups, and you know maybe you have to pick. And it was just it's a ranging yeah. conversation, mm-hmm. and we were talking a bit about how, in some ways, 
is the church one of those few spaces that individuals from those three groups actually come together and all that? And now, now, now sometimes we stop there and go and, and say that kind of, and that's great because of that empathy we were talking about before, that mm-hmm. the church has this space because it's a free public space, because it doesn't have to produce profit in the same way, it, you know, more than a cafe can, more than, you know, your local, um, you know, um, well, sorry, say leagues club, that might not have any um, uh, translation, but local whatever bar, whatever, yeah. you know, the your church has some capacity to do that better um, than, than some other places. But I'm also attentive to not wanting to stop at just that. We can theoretically be something that's for all people, but actually we're still wanting to really appeal to group A because they've got more money or whatever sure. it might be. Yeah, but yeah. I was definitely thinking about, you know, you, re- you wrote this though. The church has the potential to create space for negotiation, power analysis, solidarities, our failure to attend to them, and then our repentance to those failures. In baptism, we come into full recognition of ourselves and of our place within the hierarchies and histories of our bodies, no, sorry, our bodies bear, into the work of a renewed social order among us. And so I, I got to thinking and wanted to ask, is there something that you think the church, maybe not uniquely, but but is better positioned than a lot of other organisations, structures in our society to play in this work of recognising enemies and of working towards dismantling uh, abusive power structures and, and, and some form of repair, restoration, reconciliation, you know, without just kind of, because I think sometimes we, we go, yeah, the church is the best position to do this and yet it doesn't seem to, but I'm, I'm curious at your thought of what specifically maybe you think the church can actually bring in this kind of context yeah. and conversation. Yeah, no, I I mean, I, I absolutely think so. And, you know, I think the, um, the, the axes, it feels like just a, the the different stories being told over and over mm. again of exactly the situation you're describing. Right? <laughs> like have, oh, we have these these women who are like maybe talking too much and they're getting too much power, and these you know these other people, and what do we do with them? And <laughs> oh, and then we've got this other church where like the the poor people are showing up late, and all the food's been eaten by all the rich people who don't have to work. And then like we have this like it just it feels like the same story mm. over and over and over again mm. of people who. Um, are divided by social context, again, by that web of intersecting isms that sort of hold us in our social places. Um, And the church becomes the vehicle to, um, to create a community around those who are who have who bear the greatest burden of that in in their in their social order, um, and so it does seem like um, that sort of you know I I still actually kind of like that language of the of downward mobility that there is mm. that that sense of um, um, you know it's the it's it's the people who have made it who are constantly being asked and asked to divest themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it, you know, it's, it's the weak who, who, like the, who we need to be, um, setting up our lives for, um, don't eat before these other people, these workers get here. Like, what are you doing? Right. <laughs> yeah. This, um, look at this. And then even Jesus, you know, this woman has given me more. You mm. opened your house and this hospitality to me, Simon. And this woman has given me more. She's wept for me. And you just like are trying to sign a social contract here. Like mm. I know, I'm, I know what's going on. So we do, it's, it's, we have this story just over and over and over again. Um, we know that for some communities, that's really been really costly for them in, in the story of the church, right? That it's, yeah. um, that at one point, I know one of the emperors was really threatened because the Christians were giving out so much charitable giving that it was, it was making him look bad. And so it's like, <laughs> like, you know, so we have all of these stories of, mm. of this materializing, um, yes. in the, in the church. Um, and it's, it's all, it, it feels like this is sort of this way, like we can look into the windows of these churches and see that they're actually going through the same things that we are. Mm. Yes, thank you for that. So one thing I can imagine people thinking is, you know, when you start actually naming someone or, or, or some structure as an enemy, 
uh, is this idea that, well, now you're, you're now trying to obliterate them, you know, or you're now denigrating them, or now you're, hey, they, they're probably also struggling with, with X, Y, Z, which is why I think it's really important that, you know, the command is you're wanting to know your enemies so that you can love them, <laughs> um, right, because we believe that that to be in a position where you are doing violence to people, you're caught up in this oppression and thing is harming your soul, is harming who you are, is doing damage to you. Um, like I often talk about, like, you know, how, like, you know, as someone, you know, living in, you know, in the colony of Australia, you know, and as someone who benefits from it, like I need, you know, the critique needs to come, the, the, the redistribution of a society, the, the, the challenge and the breaking down of this needs to happen because if not, it's so easy for me just to assume that I am, you know, godlike and powerful. And it's my right to just walk into this. It is for my, so that I don't close off from those who, who are vulnerable and persecuted and, and dispossessed. You know, it's, it's this thing that, that loves me and draws me back toward Christ um, and away from, you know, this self-sufficient, whatever um and so you write in the book um we love our enemies when we extend an invitation to to a form of life where those who have the power to destroy others no longer exercise the self-destruction of hatred hoarding and violence so like it's it's one of those you know you know that the classic of our our mutual liberation is tied up together you know people will get free from being you know drawn out of their places where they have the power to oppress and to hoard and that. So, so I guess talk to us a little about that, like this idea that, you know, that harsh critique, the harsh word, the calling someone an enemy, the calling someone complicit in this is a loving gesture. Um, and I think that's, that's so important because I think that's often why people hold, hold back, right? Why they keep it as this kind of nebulous, undefined, something out there or reserve it only for the worst of the worst that we can all agree <laughs> is that like you know that you know we don't want to be mean um but yeah. what we're saying is no it's not it, it's 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 the most loving thing you can do for someone caught up in this um, is not mm-hmm. to placate them but to confront yeah that's right i mean i like please tell me if I am like, if I, if, if I am living a life counter to the gospel of freedom, like Mm. I want to know that. Um, and, and most likely, you know, I think one of the other gifts that the church offers and talk a little bit about this in the chapter and discernment is, um, you know, if we actually like really, if we do the things that, that with the, um, if we follow the sort of path that's been given to us by Jesus that we saw in the early church, we actually learn the, these things together. Like this isn't a, a one and done, right? Mm. We are actually in this constant place of discernment about our lives and the new questions mm. before us. And so it's not like there's anybody ever off the hook on this, on this question. Um, but it also makes space for us to, to be able to name when harm has been done. Um, and so, you know, we both are have this ongoing process, but it, there's also, I think, again, a, an important honesty to being able to say, I have been harmed. My community has been harmed. A community I am in so- solidarity with has been harmed by this person. Um, and to, to overlook that, actually just feels kind of dishonest. Mm. Like, who are we really fooling by saying that we don't, like, I don't think anybody's um, actually like, you know, um, I actually feel fine about Donald Trump and I'm just not going to say anything out loud about it. And maybe if I like, don't say anything, like, like anger doesn't go away. Like, Mm. like enmity doesn't go away just because you don't talk about it. Right. Like that's, um, and until you actually make space to able to, to, um, to, to name that, to get, to give that a form, then it's impossible to begin to, to do the, to do the work of saying, how did we get here? Mm. Um, what needs to be changed for this relationship to, for this relationship to change? And it's not just going to be interpersonal because our 
the, our political lives are always personal. Our personal lives are always political. Yes. So there's all these other things that have been set in motion around me um, that are also interpersonal. Um, and so I can't really, all of this has to be taken apart together um, for us to be able to get in a place where we are both set free from this relationship of enmity. Um, I don't think actually being enemies benefits anybody. Like it's not, there's, I, I do think that one of the things um, that I think separates enmity from just say like a disagreement or someone you're upset with is that power differential. Mm. Um, but that's actually not good for either party. It's not like one party's like doing great and the other one's doing badly, right? Like that's mm. like, um, th this is actually bad for both people. Yes. Um, and so what it means to love our enemies is, is to actually change that situation so that we don't have to be enemies anymore. Mm. Um, and that's not gonna happen if we just pretend that, that everything's fine. Yeah, I think that's really helpful because otherwise you think like the person who has the power who, for whom everything is going great, it's, it's then framed as, oh, it's this wonderful sacrificial thing that you have to do, or it's resisted because it's seen only as this thing, I'm, I'm just having to give up all this that's by right mind. Um, and it's like, no, no, man, you're getting free. Um, like this is, this is for, you know, for your salvation, for your, for yeah. your, for your ability to live in a flourishing, positive, constructive way in this world with your neighbors. Like it's, it's, right. it's not just that you're like benevolently, um, stepping out. It's like, no, no, you're being, you're being called out, um, by the same voice right. that called out Lazarus, you know? Yeah. And you know, I think the other part about that is once we begin to have that conversation, we actually begin to see how how you can really begin to see the complications yeah. of of the intersections of these uh, of these situations and people that we call enemies. So I think about ICE agents um, in in the U.S. A lot of um, border patrol, um, uh, part of custom, uh, immigration and customs enforcement, they recruit. Uh, people from these small towns along the border where there's no other jobs, mm -hmm. where there's, um, uh, these are jobs that don't necessarily require a lot of skills. They pay pretty well. And uh, sometimes, and many times they're people of color. Um, mm -hmm. And so you have like people who may be immigrants themselves being employed in this larger system um, that it's, that is more or less saying, this is really the only job available to you mm -hmm. to get, to get through. And of course, you know, people of course can, um, of good conscience lay down, you know, quit their jobs. But I think what's more important to say is this has been there. All of this has been structured, right? Like mm. it has been structured in such a way that this job of breaking up families and neighborhoods and churches is being done by poor, often people of color in these small towns who have no, who have few other choices in this life. Mm. So to say like, yeah, you need to take responsibility. Like this is a, this is a terrible thing. And, and me just becoming friends with the ICE agent doesn't change that situation. Like mm, I can talk yeah. to the ICE agent all day long. It is not going to change deportations. It's mm. not going to change the system that makes it impossible for there to be other jobs along the, in border mm, towns. Mm. The only thing that's going to change that is the political will of people working to dismantle those systems. Yes, that's a great point. Um, I think I remember one time, I think it was you who was talking about like, you know, church metrics and, and how do we measure our churches and, and like, you know, we need to expand the categories to include like um, someone felt compelled to leave a, um, a job which they were complicit in, in structures of abuse yes, and, and, uh, right. and the church had um, raised money to support them while they were in that. Like, it's like, right, that's right, a, yeah. if, if, you know, that's not, I'm going to do a, um, an annual minister's report soon. And that wasn't one of the categories, but like, you know, you feel like that, that those kind of, how do we, if we're thinking about that, we're trying to form this movement, we're trying to be this body uh, in relating to our world and, and, and seeking this, then we, you know, how we think about what, <laughs> how we're succeeding or doing it well, um, yeah. you know, needs to include considerations like this, needs to like, you know, touch on these topics that are, that you know, and these these issues around us, I think, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. Let's, let's, let's end with the family. Uh, so, so I think one of the things that's interesting you write is that sometimes to find redemption, you know, to go to work against the principalities and powers requires us to make ourselves enemies of the community and even the family 
in which we were so lovingly rooted. Uh, as you say, renewed allegiances to those considered former enemies will strain, challenge, and potentially destroy kinship. It's us thinking about the, oh, the, um, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, but then if you befriend the first enemy, then the friend is now the enemy. It's, it's something, there's, there's something there that, you know, I probably need a visual aid to, to pull out. But uh, I'd be interested to talk about that in terms of, you know, the idea of, un, you know, the, the potential need to undo family ties in order to have the right enemies or, or to have enemies well. Um, I mean, you don't have to necessarily go into, you, you, just for those who are going to maybe get the book, hopefully there's a brilliant story at the beginning of this chapter that you can get into or you can just say for those who are going to certainly buy the book and read. But, yeah, just just curious about, because I think this is one of those real rubber hits the road kind of points yeah. of, you know, enmity and family and, and communities of, of belonging. Yeah, I, you know, I... Um... I know that we are often presented a narrative of <clears throat> the naturalness of the family, the the, the current um, capitalist iteration of the nuclear family, um, family first, like all I have is family, right? Like these are like phrases we hear all the time. Um, uh, blood is thicker than water, right? Like these are... Um, this is a, a, a pretty constant cultural artifact that ex exists in a, a lot of the um, Western parts of the world. And so, you know, when, when we encounter the gospels and Jesus saying, actually, you know, I, um, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to draw a sword in your family between mother-in-law and daughter-in-law and between father and child. Um, this can feel really shocking for us, um, because it does, it's back to that. It feels very personal. Right. Yes. Um, and, and so what I, 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 I sort of wanted to, to think again, a, li a little less about, um, the, just the interpersonal, um, like the, which I think we just largely, like at the end of the day, you're like, okay, Jesus, like, I've still got to like take these kids to school tomorrow. Like, I don't know what to kill people, right? Like, um, but yeah. thanks. Um, but what do, what do, what if we actually begin to think a little bit more about, um, how, how economic structures our families, um, the, the people to whom, um, we pass down private property. Um, who do we pay for them to go to school? Um, how do we treat singleness in our communities? Um, and who are we responsible for as they age and as they participate? Is there, you know, as other people are, are not available to help um, with the aging process? Like all of these are, are actually economic questions at the end of the day, right? They're not interpersonal questions. Um, and so it, it might be really offensive to find out that you're, that, that money was left to, um, to somebody else's family and not to you, right? Or if we didn't have private property anymore, that was made to pass down to the next generation. Like all of these things are, um, are, are the kind of thing I think Jesus had in mind because right. Family is especially in the ancient Roman world, it really wasn't much, like much more explicitly a, um, in, a, a form of economics, then I think we are comfortable admitting. We do not like that, right? Like we want families to be like places of nurture and respite and care. Um, unless you have just been a mom who's been through the pandemic and like, we all know that like all the moms, like we're suddenly like, wait, what's going on here? Um, right. And so moments like this actually are like, oh, this is like, we, this is embedded in the system too. Um Jesus was aware of that. Um, and, and so we need to be attentive to those systems of family um, that we participate in. Yes, yes. I think as you, as you say, it, it's, it's often assumed as a natural, benevolent, um, good thing. And, yeah. and that then means that if we attach certain economics to the family, such as the passing down of, of property, then that itself becomes now, um, by the transitive property, a benevolent, natural good yeah. um, but obviously you know that then leads to systems of great generational inequality and, right. and, and, the, yeah. and the like mm -hmm. so that's so being able to talk about yeah to see that as you say it's that that constant ongoing discernment of 
what what how is this at play in in this in this system of power imbalance and disparity in our in our society yeah. which which i think is helpful in the sense that it takes it from not that this isn't an important part of that conversation but it takes it from do i still talk to my uncle even though he's like a rabid trump supporter like it's like that's a question that one has to discern but if it's mm-hmm. only ever that question and not how the whole you know whole thing is is enwrapped right. in this is is then it's not going to go as you say yeah, it's not going to achieve right. what you need to achieve hmm. yeah 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 who are we responsible for and who is responsible for us right mm. that that actually changes those questions you yes. know if you um if you have people in your life who are harmed by trump's policies mm. um then you have to like d- do you speak up about this um yes. or is it oh family first um mm. right um yeah. and so i do yeah so there really are these um I think intersecting questions for us, but I'm not really, you know, I'm not very prescriptive. Like I I don't really like, I don't want to tell you what to do. Um, I just try to tell some stories from the Bible and kind of tell you what I do. And hopefully some of it's helpful parts. It's not, don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great. Helpful for somebody. Um, (laughs) A resounding unequivocal endorsement for the book and it's, (laughs) um, which is great. Um, so yeah, so the book, the book is How to Have an Enemy. It is coming out sooner than you know. I, I was gonna say a week, but I'm not sure how long until this interview goes up. So I'm like, I don't want to let, let people lead people astray. But you can pre-order it now, which is I obviously very good for any number of uh reasons um that, that help Melissa, that help her publisher. So pre-order and tell your friends and and get fired by night if you haven't already and um, Melissa do you want people to follow you online at all yes I try to be on my best behavior but um, (laughs) it's it's a hard it's hard medium for me so I'm I'm doing I'm doing the best I can but yeah feel free you need a break from me every once in a while it's totally fine too <laughs> no, that's great well thank you that uh mrs hand will be in the show notes um thank you for joining us today anything else you want to shout out any final things you want to leave us with oh it's just so good to see you again Leah. yeah, thank you for- <laughs> thank you. yeah. i think the last time we spoke was was back uh just really early in the pandemic and i was like yeah. maybe i'll do a couple of sp- you know, specific episodes about this just us tied us over for the next month or two while while things are a bit strange. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Here we are a year later. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So good to see you. And you. Thank you for joining us today. And folks, we'll see you next week.